The Old Pilot's Plain Tales The Checkerboard Those passengers in the know would either strive to sit in a right-hand window seat or be as far away from it as possible, depending on their love of flying. The unlucky ones would lean across, striving to get a peek at the amazing view that was going to appear in the small aircraft windows. So famous was it that aviation enthusiasts the world over would spend their savings just to achieve the experience. As the aircraft turned towards the runway, it would only be a few hundred feet above the ground, and for those in the lucky seats... As the aircraft banked, the sky would disappear to be replaced by the dirty and unkempt roofs of Kowloon. In Shamshuipo, Shekipmai and Kowloon City, tourists would gawp upwards as massive airliners thundered overhead, skimming the rooftops with only fleeting glimpses of them visible through the gaps between the crowded buildings. The locals completely ignored the massive beasts, which, for them, were just part and parcel of their daily life. On board, the passengers would momentarily spy into little apartments, balconies full of potted plants and poles bearing the day's washing. Some might wonder if they would pick up clothes and land with the wing decorated with bunting made from pink knickers and old t-shirts. From just above roof level, the city looked rather scruffy and haphazard. The flat roofs were cluttered with air conditioning units, storage boxes, chicken coops, little gardens and the like. But it was home to many locals who, day in, day out, lived under the approach to Hong Kong's Kai Tak Airport. When Kai Tak was in use... Hong Kong was a dependent territory of Great Britain, but it wasn't just given away by the Chinese out of love for Britain. During the period of British colonialism, when much of the globe was coloured pink and it was said that the sun never set on the empire, China was a large and willing market for opium, so there grew a trade between India, China and Britain. Opium from India was exchanged for tea and silk in China, which was sold for vast sums in Britain and throughout the empire. Faced with a drug crisis, the emperor of China tried to halt the opium trade, but this was a far too lucrative a business to allow it to stop without suitable recompense. The British Navy, employing gunboat diplomacy, sailed up the Pearl, the Geelong and the Yangtze rivers, destroying forts, capturing cities and harbours along the way, until the Emperor capitulated. As a consequence, in 1842, he ceded the island of Kowloon to the British in perpetuity. A second opium war a few years later resulted in the Kowloon Peninsula plus Stonecutters Island joining Hong Kong as part of the British Empire. Living conditions on the island were difficult, but eventually it started attracting merchants, particularly after an additional area known as the New Territories were given over on a 99-year lease in 1898. Twenty-two years later, aviation arrived at Kai Tak with the building of an airport. It started with two businessmen, Ho Kai and Ao Tak, 
as a land reclamation project that went bust, hence its name. But then a man called Harry Abbott opened a school of aviation on the reclaimed land. Soon it had a small grass strip runway, and the RAF began operating from there, building a slipway for seaplanes that landed in Kowloon Bay. Several flying clubs appeared, which eventually amalgamated to become the Hong Kong Aviation Club, to this day a great haunt for GA pilots and airline pilots alike. Hong Kong fell into the hands of the Japanese during the Second World War. They attacked on the very same day of the attack on Pearl Harbor, and under their cruel rule they expanded Kai Tak, using Allied prisoners of war as labourers. The occupation lasted four years, but when back under British rule, the airport became the Royal Naval Air Station HMS Flycatcher. In 1954, plans to develop Kaitak into a modern airport were made public, and by 1957, the runways had been extended. Probably the largest aircraft to operate out of there then was the Bristol Britannia, with the airport being used as a staging stop for BOAC's London to Tokyo route. A year later, the main runway was extended further into the harbour, and by 1962 the passengers had the long-awaited comfort of a proper terminal. By the mid-70s, a further expansion increased the landing area to over 11,000 feet, enough to comfortably accommodate the jet airliners of the era. The first 747 to land there was in April 1970, and in those days, to land on runway 13, pilots were required to break cloud and be visual with the airport overhead Chung Chow Island some 22 miles away and then fly a completely visual approach. The 70s also saw the introduction of instrument landing systems to aid aircraft during the many times of the year when the airport was plagued by bad weather. By now, it only had one runway, numbered 13 and 31 the old runway's real estate being used for apron space. Landing into the northerly runway, 3-1, was a relatively simple approach, albeit flown through a narrow gap in between the Pashi-1 battery on Hong Kong Island and the Gough battery on Devil's Peak on the mainland. The water gap was less than 500 metres, around 1,500 feet, and an aircraft passing through it would be descending through 600 feet. Not only was the high ground either side of you something to be very aware of, but the final part of the approach was flown over water which, at night, would look inky black, a dark, uninviting hole. The go-around from this runway was always interesting. Kai Tak was almost completely surrounded by sharp-edged ridges and peaks. Less than five miles to the south and southwest is the island of Hong Kong, most of which is over 1,000 feet high and rises to nearly 2,000 feet at Victoria Peak. Three miles east is Twin Peaks, Violet Hill and Mount Nicholson, which rise to over 2,300 feet. The worst terrain is to the north, it starts less than three miles away as the ground rises into a stark granite ridge and rapidly reaches 3,300 feet around Kowloon Peak and Lion Rock. 
the only safe terrain is to the west, where, at least initially, the ground is below a thousand feet. Don't go too far, however, as pretty soon Lantau Island will appear with its craggy peak at over 3,000 feet above sea level. So a missed approach to runway 13 required careful navigation. An early westerly turn was required to avoid rising terrain ahead, but not too early, or you would be heading for the peak atop Hong Kong Island. Once that initial turn was made, a second would be required to navigate the channel between Hong Kong and Lantau, hopefully above the other smaller islands. When I tell you of the care we took preparing for and flying an approach to runway 31, it was nothing to landing on the opposite end, so you can begin, perhaps, to understand how interesting runway 13 was. While the authorities were putting a conventional instrument landing system onto the end of runway 31, it was very apparent that no similar system would serve for runway 13. An ILS beam would very quickly run into the high ground to the north, and trying to intercept that beam would require one to pass through solid rock, a trick that the average airline pilot was yet to master. I've yet to discover who took credit for the ingenious solution, but I feel he deserved a pat on the back. Rather than locating the ILS on the end of the runway, it was placed on a high rock some two and a half miles on the extended centreline and angled out to the west, where the terrain was a little more forgiving. Not to be confused with an approach that was aligned with and ended up on the landing strip, it was renamed an Instrument Guidance System, or IGS. The IGS beam pointed into a relatively safe area between the islands where one could manoeuvre and capture the beam without too much danger, albeit the track towards the start of the IGS was flown around the top of Lantau Island only 1,400 feet above the peak. Once established on the beam, a safe descent could be performed down towards the crowded settlements of Kowloon, so long as one didn't deviate too much. The outer marker was positioned on top of Tsingyai Island, where the crossing height was 1,700 feet and the ground barely 600 feet below. On a good weather day, one would be acutely aware of the ominous presence of the rocky outcrops passing by on the left side as one flew over the crowded Victoria Harbour and descended into the densely populated areas of Western Carolina. Oh, by the way, we'll be coming in on runway 13. If you've never flown into Hong Kong before, you'll be amazed at the approach we have to make. What did you mean by that? Runway 13. <laughs> ominous. Naval types seem to thrive on superstition. <laughs> well, the same runway 13 has a very dicey approach. Bit of a corker, isn't it? Piece of cake. In order to complete a safe landing, one had to be visual with the ground by the time one reached a middle marker beacon, a little less than 700 feet, a mere 2.2 miles before arriving at the rocky mound upon which the IGS had been built. From then on, the rest of the approach would be flown visually. The first point of reference was the checkerboard. 
On the side of the stone outcrop, there had been painted a large area of orange and white squares, resembling a colourful chessboard. Approaching this marker, one commenced a right-hand finals turn for a little less than 50 degrees down amongst the buildings to the runway which stretched out into the harbour with water all around. This turn would be completed around 200 feet and from then on things should be simple. At night, your flight path was aided by a series of white flashing lights that led around the turn to the threshold of the runway, for this reason, throughout the entire area of Hong Kong and Kowloon, there was not one single flashing light allowed on a building. Anyway, that all seems simple enough, doesn't it? There were more demanding manoeuvres on other airfields, and ones very similar, such as the Kanazi approach to New York's 13 left and 13 right. In Hong Kong, there were a few additional factors that made the Kai Tak approach one that could test the most capable of pilots. Ignoring the proximity of the unforgiving terrain that surrounded the airport, it was usually the wind that would cause the problems. Wind of any reasonable strength would curl around the high ground, causing significant swings in direction, rotors, wind shears, updrafts, downdrafts and turbulence. A wind from the east would slacken the turn, which could result in pilots still trying to line up their big aircraft at very low level. A wind from the west would mean a strong tailwind down the IGS with a high ground speed and a tightening final turn. If you got visual late, you might end up cranking the aircraft around with well over 30 degrees of bank in order to line up, and you were always working out in your head what drift you needed to roll out with as you settle onto the centre line so that you didn't immediately drift off it again. Hong Kong has its typhoon season as well, and the weather could be appalling, with pelting rain, very strong gusting winds and poor visibility, but still the airliners would queue up to make their approaches. The 1-3 go-around had to be flown as carefully as the one I described for 3-1. Ahead and to the left there was high ground with a safety altitude of 4,500 feet, only a few miles away, and in the supposedly safe direction to the south, it was still 3,900 feet, barely any better. The safe corridor to fly required the crew to continue along the path of the IGS to the middle marker before turning right and effectively flying down the line of the runway in between the island of Hong Kong and the high ground on Kowloon before reaching the relative safety of open ocean. On one famous occasion, a 747 went around straight ahead, barely clearing the rocks and only surviving because, by luck, they found a low point on the ridgeline. Safely on the ground, particularly on a difficult day, it would be backslaps and handshakes all round, but then would come the departure. On a hot evening, the performance books would be out to calculate how much weight could be carried. Takeoffs were almost always conducted on runway 13, even with a significant tailwind, as to attempt to use runway 31 towards Kowloon and the high ground was just too limiting. The figures were calculated to single degrees of temperature and knots of wind, 
A small change in the predicted conditions might require a taxi back and an offload of cargo. Inevitably, full power would be required, and as the aircraft eventually lifted off, it was common to see the radio altimeter barely reading as the end of the runway disappeared beneath the flight deck. Out over the black water, all that could be seen ahead were the lights of dwellings way above you on Hong Kong Island. For noise abatement at night, the airport conducted landings on 3-1 and takeoffs on 1-3 in opposite directions, four at a time. When that last of a group of four aircraft got airborne, the first of the next landing group would already be on finals heading straight towards them. Kaitak was an airport with a reputation that has only grown more dramatic since it was closed but there is no doubt it was an exhilarating place to fly into that few captains took for granted. There were plenty of reminders of those who did, including the sight of a nearly new 747-400 sitting in the harbour off the end of runway 13 following a badly flown finals turn. With the aircraft's fins sticking up in front of the runway, it was blocking departures, so the armed forces set charges and blew it off. Few senses registered one's arrival at Kai Tank better than the sense of smell. The water channels beside the runway led into Kowloon Bay and were more or less an open sewer for the local inhabitants. As the aircraft landed and the pressurisation system opened up the vents to equalise the air pressure, the smells of Hong Kong would percolate through the aircraft bringing an awful stench of human excrement, belying the translation of Hong Kong as fragrant harbour. One day Bob Hope was travelling on a 747 into Kai Tak and was sitting on the flight deck. When the usual smell arrived, the captain turned to apologise for the stench, explaining that it was sewage. "'I know what it is,' came the reply, "'but what have they done to it?' Despite the smell, however, we all love the place. If you enjoyed this story, please leave a review at Apple Podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. Find us at airlinepilotguy.com.